sure our cell phones are turned off like Jeff just did. Remind me to turn mine off. And a couple of announcements. Uh, uh, one has to do with the uh, picnic on out at uh, Patterson, out in Patterson on Saturday, October the 13th, from 12 to 4, and we're going to be doing that in conjunction with um, Country Bible Church from Brenham. So that's going to be a lot of fun and get ready to play some volleyball and some other other uh, competition type things. Good friendly competition. See who can eat the most and. All that kind of stuff. And then the other announcement is to remind parents to get their kids here just a little bit early on Sunday mornings because we're teaching them some songs uh, related to Bible verses. So this helps them memorize Bible verses. But Sally's written a lot of these. And since it's uh, uh, she can't be in two places at one time, we're doing starting that just a little bit early before class to give her time to finish that and then get into class. So just a reminder, uh, reminder there. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get into the word this evening, let's have a, a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that when we are out of fellowship, as the psalmist put it, when we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear. This means that when we're out of fellowship, we're pretty much uh, operating on our own resources and there's nothing spiritually valuable in that. And so in order to produce anything in our life that has eternal value, we need to be walking by the Spirit, which means we need to be in fellowship. And that means that we need to confess our sins uh, consistently to make sure we are in fellowship. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Then I will uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that today we can come together, fellowship around the teaching of your word, that as we study your word, we might be strengthened and encouraged spiritually, that as we focus upon your word, that we know God the Holy Spirit uses it in a number of different ways as, as he puts that into our soul and the doctrines that we learn fit together with other doctrines so that over time we begin to think more consistently as believers we understand the nature of reality as you have created it and defined it. And then on the basis of your word, we make our decisions. We live in such a way that you are honored and glorified, and we live on the basis of, uh, of, of reality. Now, fathers, we continue our study this evening in Romans as we go forward in our understanding of what you've provided for us in our spiritual life in this church age. We pray that we might recognize what a tremendous uh, privilege we have to have all of these resources, to have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who fills us, who is the source of our strength and power, and is the one who is the energy in our spiritual life. And we pray that as we study, we might not take these things lightly and might not um, just a, uh, might fall, not fall prey to the uh, uh, idea of just taking it lightly because it's a lot of things that we've heard before but that we might be focused 
on your word and that God the Holy Spirit can use this to really challenge us and to motivate us and to push us forward in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, a couple of things before we get into Romans itself. And trust me, all this is going to tie together a little bit. But I want to start off by talking a little bit about the problem with presuppositions. The problem with presuppositions, and this may be a word that is not uh, commonly used by you, and so we need to uh, determine whether this is just a fancy word or a critical concept. A presupposition for folks who live in Arkansas is an assumption. An assumption. These are often unconscious assumptions, and by that I mean these are beliefs that we have accepted as true that uh, act as a, a, a traffic cop in our thinking in ways that we don't always appreciate. We all have uh, presuppositions, and we've got a couple of interesting examples of the operation of presuppositions just from uh, the news today. And the first one is one that uh, you probably have uh, picked up on, and that has to do with the, all of the things going on with the attacks on the embassies, the U.S. embassies in Cairo and in Benghazi in Libya uh, last week. And if you recall, going back to 9-11-12, that is September 11th, 2012, last week, Late in the evening, we heard news reports about uh, mobs and riots around the U.S. Embassy in Cairo. And then late in the evening, there was this assault that uh, took place in Benghazi, Libya, that cost the lives of our ambassador to Libya, as well as uh, three or four others who were there uh, associated with the embassy. I've read some different reports. Uh, today I read a report, and I don't know how accurate it is because I didn't have time to follow up on it, that uh, one of the, I think one or two were former SEALs, and they were not formally attached to the embassy, but they were there, and they uh, immediately became involved in order to protect uh, the ambassador. So this is, um, this is an extremely significant uh, situation. And it was interesting that next morning, last Wednesday morning when I awakened, and I turned on the news, I turned on, um, I had on ABC, I think, to watch the local news, and it drifted into, uh, <clears throat> good morning, we want to scare you, America. And then, um, uh, and, and they had their take on it, which I didn't really, really agree with, and I switched over to Fox News, and they had a panel of three individuals, including one who is usually representative of a more liberal viewpoint, and they were all in agreement that this was an act of war. And I never heard that looking at ABC. I switched back over to NBC and CBS, and I didn't hear anybody on the mainstream uh, uh, channels use the term act of war. And that reflects how these two different groups of people, not necessarily all conservatives, but how these two different groups of people immediately interpreted the events that they saw. Uh, the, the mainstream media did not see the uh, lowering of the U.S. flag and the raising of an of a Islamist uh, flag over the embassy in Cairo as an act of war. Uh, up until just recently, that would, have, that would have certainly been viewed as an, act, as an act of war. And all this has to do with the way the mindset that, that people bring to certain circumstances. And that's governed by a presupposition. 
and the presupposition that has governed this administration, and I'm not doing this to pick on this administration, but it's just such a wonderful example of how presuppositions affect our decisions. If we don't think about the assumptions we bring to any event in life, and, and we, if we're brought up from a background, any background, we pick up a lot of assumptions from the culture around us, from friends, family, peers, professors, that shape our thinking and our opinions. And some of them are divine viewpoints. Some, many of them are human viewpoint. And these become controlling, uh, ideas that shape how we immediately perceive and interpret events. And so last week, uh, immediately after those things became known on Wednesday morning, uh, uh, Mr. Romney came out and criticized the administration. It's been wrongly uh, characterized by the mainstream media, but aside from that, he was criticizing the president and the administration mostly because their initial reaction was apologize, 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 and then once he came out and commented on the fact that if they weren't uh, portraying a weakness toward Islamic countries by apologizing, oh, it's our, our fault because some American said something that offended you, then he became the target. So it was apologize, 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 blame Mitt Romney, apologize, apologize. And and the fact that there were was this, the, whether it was coming out of the White House or coming out of an embassy is not consequential. It was this initial response that it's our fault. You were offended. Oh, we have to apologize. We did something. You took offense. It's not that anybody did anything in intending to, to offend them. But what shaped that? What was the thinking that caused a this large number of people across the board in the White House, in Congress, in, in the State Department to interpret this event as something that was caused by us? And it has to do with a mindset, assumptions about reality that have become increasingly embedded in certain segments of our culture. And especially with this president, this administration, there has been a conscious removal of any reference to Islamists, radical Islam, Islamofascists, or just good old-fashioned Quran-believing Muslims, depending on how you want to identify them, as the source of terrorism that all this terrorist activity over the last 10, 20 years, it just by coincidence that it happens to involve a lot of people who've gone to training camps in Afghanistan or Iraq, who knew uh, that they would have this in common. What a coincidence. Uh, but we're going, not going to identify them in any way as being Arab or Muslim. We're going to identify them simply as, as criminals. And so... As a result of that mindset in this administration, that presupposition, what's happened is they've gone through all the training manuals in the FBI, Counterterrorism Task Force, all these other organizations, and they've removed any verbiage related to uh, Islamist, Islamic terrorism, anything like that. It's just expunged from the, the official documents. That's the presupposition is there's no Islamic terrorism out there. So when you get warnings like we received about things that might happen in Cairo and things that might happen in Benghazi and other places, when you get those warnings that there may be a terrorist event because you have put on a the wrong shade of glasses governed by this presupposition that says there's no Islamic terrorism, you discount it. it it's not going to happen because that, that we they firmly believe that really doesn't exist. 
And now what's happened a week later, the evidence is overwhelming, and all of a sudden the administration and, and uh, spokesman Jay Carney's had to do a 180. Of course, they never admit they've had to change their mind, and they're still claiming well, that, well, the Republican candidate, uh, Mitt Romney, just he just shot from the hip. He drew and he fired without taking aim. Wait a minute. The reason you see a difference is because the presupposition from the Romney perspective and the conservative perspective is that the terrorists are energized by an Islamic worldview, and they do exist. So when something happens on 9-11 and there's an attack on the embassy, we can pretty much put two and two together without getting more evidence and assume this was an orchestrated assault that was, had something to do with, with their uh, marking of, of, of 9-11 and instantly label it or be able to identify it as a terrorist event. Why? It's a totally different presupposition, totally different, uh, and, and, and nobody's talking about that. It's just a, an underlying, uh, immer- uh, deeply submerged belief system about what's going on in reality. And so when people see certain things, those presuppositions, and people can change their presuppositions if they'll be objective, but those presuppositions can shape how they interpret certain things. Another example that came out in the news yesterday, some of you may not be aware of this, but there was a, a, a exploded all over uh, many news outlets yesterday uh, stories about an ancient text that was discovered that talks about Jesus' wife. Uh, you don't look so shocked. This is, this is really old news. And the person who is per, uh, really behind this discovery of a of a fragment of, of a manuscript is a woman by the name of Karen King. She's a professor at Harvard, and her name should, if you're knowledgeable about certain things, her name should not be uh, much of a surprise. But the trouble you get into with, with any popular news media is they don't understand anything about the Bible, biblical archaeology, biblical issues, good, bad, or otherwise, liberal uh, conservative because they're just fundamentally ignorant. So uh, the uh, Daily Mail uh, actually said, if genuine, this document casts doubt on a centuries-old official representation of Mary Magdalene as a repentant whore and overturns the Christian ideal of sexual abstinence. If you read the fragment and the translation of it, you can't get any of that out, out of it. But but there's just this this massive ignorance that's shaped by a presuppositional uh, negativity towards Christianity, and, and Christianity can't be true. That's just a lot of myth and mumbo jumbo that those uh, Christians uh, hold on to. Well, Karen King is extremely liberal, and she's the Harvard professor who came up with this. In fact, there was one article that came out that said, <coughs> I thought it was quite humorous. Uh, the headline was. Karen King needs Jesus to have a wife so that she can have a future career. And, and that, that really nailed it. Uh, here she is. Uh, her presupposition is that the Bible, none of the, none of the, uh, nothing that we have in the New Testament is trustworthy at all. But you can find fragments of Gnostic gospels from 150 to 400 years after Jesus and the apostles lived, and based on this fragmentary patchwork quilt information, you can learn more about Jesus and the truth about Jesus than you can by going to 
first century documents by people who actually witnessed the life of Jesus. And so that's her presupposition, and here's the uh, the fragment that uh, has come up with, and it's dated to the late second century. That's at least a 100 years after the closing of the New Testament canon uh, to the fourth century. It was found, or uh, uh, it, it probably originated in Egypt, at least that seems to be the suggestion, but nobody knows who owns it. Its provenance is unknown. Nobody knows where it was found. It wasn't discovered in its original location, so nobody knows how to uh, properly evaluate it. Once any archaeological uh, artifact is removed from its original location, it becomes basically useless for demonstrating or proving anything because you no longer have a context, uh, a context for it. Uh, one um, <clears throat> one um, uh, Coptic scholar. It's originally it's written in Coptic, which is the language used by uh, Egyptian Christians, and in Egypt, and it's a, a derivative of a, of a hieroglyphic language. And uh, one scholar expressed a tremendous uh, skepticism. Uh, named uh, Christian Askeland is quoted in a Tyndale House. Uh, press release on the on the topic, and it's not sh- sure that it's even good Coptic. In fact, I was reading on a, 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 a discussion, textual criticism discussion group that I am a member of. I uh, don't comment on it because most of these guys on there are extremely intelligent, quite, uh, quite brilliant on textual criticism. We're just scoffing at this, that it's written by somebody who, who – barely knew Coptic, somebody who uh, probably never spoke it. It's uh, just a patchwork quilt. It's it's really bad Coptic. It's uh, most believe it's some sort of uh, forgery. And the fact that uh, nobody knows who owns it, where it came from, where it was found, anything like that, uh, makes it seem as if uh, any claim to anything other than a forgery is, uh, would, would, would be impossible. So it's a Gnostic fragment. There's no provenance. We don't know who the owner is. There's no context for it, so who really should care? But yet the media will make it, is making a big, big deal about this because they're going to say, oh, we can prove then Jesus had a wife and the New Testament is wrong, etc., etc. So I thought you'd be interested in seeing what the text actually says. This is the translation of it. Now, each of the numbers represent a line on the text. You have the front and then the back. The brackets indicate uh, where there's missing things. So in between the bracket, those words that are there are all that we have. So the first line reads, not to me, my mother gave to me, and then you have L-I, the first two words, and it's assumed the word there is going to be life. Second line, the disciple said to Jesus, Third line, deny, Mary is worthy of it. Fourth line, Jesus said to them, my wife. Fifth line, she will be able to be my disciple. Sixth line, let wicked people swell up. Seventh line, as for me, I dwell with her in order to. Eighth line, an image. And then on the back says, my, looks like it might be mother, then the word three, then a couple of blank lines, then forthwith, and then just ink traces. So it doesn't really say a whole lot. But they extrapolate on the basis of this that this this gives us some accurate information about about Jesus. Now, why do they do that? Because they've got this mindset, this presuppositional framework that 
the New Testament can't possibly be what it claims to be. It can't possibly even be an accurate historical document. Karen King was a member of what was called the Jesus Seminar, which started back in 1985. This was a group of of extremely liberal scholars who took about 10 to 15 years evaluating the New Testament with their their color-coded pens going along and trying to decide what the his, what the historical Jesus would have said. Now, the term the historical Jesus doesn't mean what you think it means. In, in, in scholarly uh, code language, that means the information we know to be true about Jesus that didn't come from anything in the New Testament which we can't trust. So in other words, what they mean is the historical Jesus is just information we get outside of the New Testament because we've determined and their presuppositional grid is the New Testament is all wrong. It can't be trusted. So this means that when they see something like this, they just get all excited. They just get all a quiver, and they're, they're, they're going to trust this more than they're going to trust something from 150 years earlier. That's the grid of presupposition. It can, dis- If you're not careful, if you're not aware of your own assumptions and presuppositions, then uh, you lose all objectivity. That happens in all kinds of studies, and it happens in the study of the passage we're looking at tonight, which is Romans 7. Romans 7, 1 through 6, is a transitional paragraph from Romans 6, which gives us the foundation, the doctrinal foundation for the spiritual life in the church age, to another discussion in Romans 7, uh, 7 through 25, where Paul is going to show that simple morality or following the moral aspect of the, of the Mosaic law just isn't enough to, to give us spirituality. Romans 7, 1 through 6 forms the transition there. And in the middle of that, Paul uses an illustration from a, just a, a very small snapshot of what the Old Testament teaches about divorce. And unfortunately, because of the presuppositional grid of a lot of Christians, they come to this and they look at verses 2 and 3 as if Paul is giving us a <clears throat> definitive uh, explanation of the doctrine of divorce and remarriage. And it's not. All he's doing is he's taking one small aspect of, the, of the, what is taught in the Mosaic Law and he's using that to illustrate a principle that he's talking about in Romans 7, 1 through 6. So we always have to be careful with those little presuppositions and make sure that we look at the text and study the text and let it speak for itself. So as we get started here, we have to remember that, that, <clears throat> that if we ever take the text out of a context, we're left with a con job. And context is in, in Bible study or any kind of literary study or even the study of law and the Constitution, context is like location in, in real estate. It's the same thing. Real estate is talking about a physical geographical location, and context is talking about the literary location. So when you read a paragraph, it's always in a context. And the context of Romans 7, 1 through 6 is in the context of this three-chapter section where Paul is dealing with the basis for and how believers now are to live uh, the Christian life. 
in Romans chapter uh, 6. The focus is on the foundation for our spiritual life, which is what happened at the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior. At that instant, we are legally identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection so that the result is we become a new creature in Christ and we are entered into the body of Christ. Now, that last phrase is important because we, we uh, Paul refers to this again in verse 4 of Romans 7, 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. So that connects it back. So Romans 7 is is <clears throat> contextually comes right out of and flows from what he's saying in Romans 6. So we have to understand that in what Paul is saying in Romans 6. And so I put up this little chart here to sort of compare the two. Romans 6 talks about the way we were before we were saved. The way we were before we were saved, we were alive to sin. We were a slave of sin in Romans 6.20. Um, we were uh, free. That means there's no positive righteousness in our life as, as an unbeliever. We are completely controlled by the sin nature. It dominates everything. The sin nature not only produces those horrible, nasty things that we talk of as sin, whether they're overt sins such as uh, murder or genocide or rape or criminality, things of that nature, or whether we're talking about uh, sins of the tongue such as slander and gossip, or whether we're talking about uh, emotional sins or mental attitude sins such as anger, resentment, bitterness, jealousy, uh, sexual lust, any kind of lust, all of those uh, make up the unseen immaterial sins. That's all produced by the area of weakness in our sin nature. But our sin nature also produces good because there are many good things that are done by unbelievers. There are many unbelievers who have a great sense of, of moral rectitude. They have a great sense of, of moral integrity. It's not necessarily spiritual. There are among uh, is, Islamic believers... There are those who are very rigid in their observance to their uh, law. That is a sense of moral rectitude. Uh, we, it would differ from us. If you are a Jehovah's Witness, this is a Christian heresy. Does not be, they do not believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ. In Jehovah's Witness thinking, it's derivative deity. For them, there was a time when Jesus began as a human and then he receives deity, so they don't have a, full, a, a, a Jesus who's fully God. Therefore, they don't really have payment for sin. With no payment for sin, you have to work your way to heaven, so you better be good. And <clears throat> so you have many people who are in works-oriented religions like Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses, and they're working their way to heaven. So in some cases, sadly, they're much more trustworthy than many Christians are because they're afraid they're going to lose eternal salvation if they commit certain sins. Same thing is true with Mormonism. Uh, Mormonism is not a monotheistic religion, as many people uh, claim, because in Mormonism, any human can eventually be good enough 
to become a god in the next life. So they really have a polytheistic religion, and it's a works-oriented religion. The only way you can make sure that you're good enough to get into the next life is to uh, make sure you're fulfilling all of the ritual and all of the uh, moral uh, requirements of, of Mormonism. Unless, of course, you're a woman, then you have to do all of that, plus make sure that you've pleased your husband enough to where when he's resurrected in the next life, he will ask you to join him. Uh, that's a sad thing in Mormonism is women can't get there without the men. That's one of the reasons why in the 19th century Mormonism had polygamy as part of their doctrines is because there were m many more women than men, and if women can't get into heaven without a man, then, then we've got to do something about that so we'll have many wives per man. The other reason was because Brigham Young and Joseph Smith were sexual perverts. Uh, Joseph Smith uh, made his elders uh, uh, give their wives to him to sleep with as a sign of their loyalty and devotion to him. Uh, so there's a lot of really strange things that went on. And usually modern uh, Mormons, uh, 20th century Mormons, try to cover that up or ignore it. That's not part of what they do today that we know of. Who knows what goes on inside the secret temple services in a, in a, uh, in a, in a Mormon wedding. So <clears throat> there are many moral things that an unbeliever can do. So just because somebody's an unbeliever doesn't mean they don't have a sense of moral rectitude. Uh, but they're still a slave to their sin nature, and they cannot produce any kind of righteousness. After we're saved, Paul says in Romans 6, we're dead to sin. It doesn't mean that the sin nature is gone. The sin, he doesn't say the sin nature is dead to us, but that we are dead to the sin nature. The sin nature doesn't have the same control. In Romans 6, 7, he says, we're justified from sin. And most translations translate that as freed. In 6, 19, he shifts to the word freed, eleutherao, and we become no longer, uh, we're no longer a slave to the sin nature. We're a slave to God. Nobody's free. Okay, you're either a slave to the sin nature or you're a slave to God, but you're not free. There's no in-between in position. There's no neutrality there. You're one or the other. Before you're saved, you are exclusively a slave to the sin nature. After you're a slave, position, after you're saved, you are positionally a slave to righteousness. But we use our volition to say, yeah, I want to go back to the leeks and garlics of my sin nature, so to speak. I want to go back and put myself under the control. It was so comfortable when I have so many great, wonderful uh, comfortable habit patterns that my sin nature provided for me that when life gets a little tense or a little rugged, it, it's a lot easier to let my sin nature solve my problems and to go back under the dominion of my sin nature rather than try to trust Christ. That's, that, that gets awfully threatening to really trust in a promise of Scripture. So rather than trusting and believing that I'm a new person in Christ because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and living in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to go back to my comfort zone of the sin nature. And that's the real challenge for us is to make that, that kind of a decision. So the argument in Romans 6 is we're dead to sin, we're justified from the sin nature, we're freed from the power, of the, the, the tyranny of the sin nature, and we've now become a slave to God 
and a slave to righteousness, stated in 6, 19 to 21. In Romans 7, Paul simply advances that in relation to the law. Rather than talking about being dead to sin, he moves the uh, <clears throat> moves our thinking down the field a little bit. He said we're also dead to the law. And Romans 7, 4, he doesn't say the law died. We are dead to the law. Just as we have been justified from sin and freed from sin, we are now free from the law in 7, 3. That tie to the law has been abolished, removed. It's been completely nullified in 7.7 for the purpose that we can now live in the newness of the Spirit. That's the end game. We're not freed from the law so we can go fulfill every fantasy, every lust of our sin nature. We're freed from the law so that we can serve God, so that we can be slaves of righteousness, and so that we can put into practice in our life the principles that God has revealed in Scripture. We're not free to do what we want to do. We're free to serve Him. That's the, that's the distinction. Now, as we get into Romans 7, 1 through 6, and we look at this transition, the focus has shifted now, as I said, from being freed from the sin nature and the authority of the sin nature to being freed from the authority of the, of the law. We have to understand what that means, and there's two basically two questions, two issues that have to be resolved as we look at these first six verses. The first is, what is the meaning of law? What is the meaning of law? Let me read the first verse for you. Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, who would that be? Who would it be that knew the law? Those would be, if he's talking about the Mosaic law, he would be talking to Jews. If he's talking to Romans, because he's writing to Christians and Romans, if he's talking to Roman Gentiles, then he would be referring to maybe Roman law. If he's talking to just anybody, it could be any kind of law. So which law is he talking about? That's, that's going to be the question is what's the meaning of law? Is it the Mosaic law? Is it Roman law or Greek law? Or is it just law in general? So that's, that's the question. Uh, the second question is, what's the significance then of this this marriage illustration that he brings in in verses 2 to 3? And let me give you a little hint in terms of if you're reading anything and you're you're going through the page and you hit something that, that and you're not sure why it's there or what it means or how it fits, go to the conclusion. Take a look at how the author uses it to reach his conclusion, and that'll tell you the, the, the way in which he's using that illustration. And just because an author uses an illustration doesn't mean he's talking about everything uh, related to what's in that illustration. If he's, if he's a good writer, he may just be focusing on a very fine point in that illustration, and that's what, what allows him to go to, to his conclusion. And the conclusion narrows our understanding of, of, uh, of the illustration. So let's look at the first issue. <clears throat> that first issue is this word law. Uh, the Greek word is namas. Namas. We use the word sometimes antinomian. Anti meaning against. Nomian comes from this, this word namas for law. It means somebody who is lawless, somebody who... Uh, just wants to live any way they, they would like to. And it's translated a number of ways and has a number of meanings in different, depending on the context. 
It can refer to a law in general. It can refer to a, a principle. It can refer specifically to the Mosaic law. It could refer to any law code in, in, um, <clears throat> in general. Uh, it could refer to natural law or it could re- refer to uh, revealed law or revealed principles or revealed uh, absolutes. So this is part of the question. Now, when we look at this, interpret anything in Scripture, one of the questions we have to answer is, who is who's Paul talking to? Who's the writer addressing? He's addressing a group of believers who are in the capital city of the Roman Empire in Rome. And a large segment of this congregation has a Jewish background. They are Jewish background believers. And so a lot of what Paul has said in in this epistle is directly related to those who have come to Christianity with a mindset, a previous mindset that was shaped by their study of the Torah, of their study of the Mosaic Law. He spends a lot of time in Romans chapter, the last part of Romans 1 and Romans 2 and the first part of Romans 3, showing that righteousness cannot come from the observance of the law. Now, he's not talking about law in general there, is he? He's talking about the Mosaic law in specific. When he finishes Romans 8, he builds to this uh, tremendous crescendo at the end of Romans 8, where we have a, uh, a couple of verses that are well known to us, where Paul concludes by saying, uh, uh, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And and he's built to this great conclusion, this great verse, but there's some questions in the back row. Well, wait a minute, we're Jewish. God said he would always love us, but he's getting ready to kick our butt. God doesn't love the Jews anymore because we've rejected the Messiah. How can you say that God's love can't be lost? And so Paul then in Romans 9, 10, and 11 answers that question why God's love has not been uh, finally or totally lost by the Jewish people, that God still has a plan and purpose for the Jewish people and they will ultimately come to salvation. That's how Romans 9, 10, and 11 fits within that that particular argument. So this Jewish background to his audience is really important for understanding what Paul is, is saying. So when you realize that, it's a little less likely that when Paul talks about law in this epistle that he's going to be talking about Roman law or Greek law or just uh, law in general. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> the word law in Romans never refers to anything other than the Mosaic law. It always refers to the Mosaic law. Now, one of the reasons that you have people, and you do have a lot of scholars, a number of scholars who will come along. I mean, it's all over the board. It's Romans 7, 1 through 6 is a highly debated passage on almost every point that's in here. But when the word namas occurs in this in this verse, it doesn't have an article with it. In English, the definite article, the, 
identify something in terms of its uniqueness or singularity. For you, for example, if we just use a, an indefinite article, Greek doesn't have an indefinite article, it just has an article. And we say an apple. Well, an, an apple it could be any apple in the category of apples. But if we talk about the apple, we're talking about a specific apple. The definite article in English identifies a specific uh, entity within a group or category. In, in Greek, the article is really weird. It doesn't have anything to do with how it's used in English. There are a lot of different ways that uh, an article or the lack of article uh, of the article can be used in Greek. In fact, in a number of contexts, the la- and this is one of them, the absence of the article makes the noun more specific than the presence of the article. It sounds a little backwards, but we have a uh, somewhat of a similar example in in, in English, uh, especially British English, and some Canadian English, when they speak of the, they don't go to the hospital or the university or the college. They go to university. They go to hospital, and it is because that is viewed as a certain kind of noun that is 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 of a certain class that's more definite inherently. Like the word God in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. There's no article there. So our uh, Jehovah's Witness friends that come knock on our door will tell you that because when it says that um, the word was God, there's no article there, so it's not the God, it's a God. The word was a God. See, it's just saying Jesus was a God, it's not saying that he was the God. But that's because they don't understand the role of the article in Greek, that the absence of the article emphasizes the quality, the uniqueness of the noun itself. So there are many places in Romans where the word law, namas, does not have uh, the article with it, yet it clearly is referring to uh, to the Mosaic Law. Uh, passages such as uh, Romans at twelve, uh, 2.12, 2.17, 2.25, that whole section there we studied in, in chapter 2, uh, 3.31, 4.13 through 14, uh, Romans 10.4. These are all places where the word law occurs without the article and clearly from context refers to the Mosaic Law. Uh, let me. I went through those fast. Romans two twelve, Romans two seventeen, Romans two twenty five, two twenty seven, three thirty one, four thirteen through fourteen, uh, ten four. These are all places where the word law does does not have possess the article. So it is clearly, it, but it is clearly in context talking about uh, the Mosaic law. The word law occurs. <clears throat> some 195 times in the New Testament, and 180 of those 195 uses refer to the Mosaic Law. So your, your, your presupposition, you're going to get that word tonight one way or the other. Your presupposition when you see the word namas in the New Testament should be it's the Mosaic Law because only 15 out of 195 uses that's about 7.5% are not referring to the Mosaic Law. So if you think it's the Mosaic Law, it's got about a um, 93% chance of being the Mosaic Law. In Romans, 
It never refers to just law in general or Greek law or Roman law. It always refers to um, it always refers to uh, the Mosaic law. Now, the Mosaic law was this covenant that God made with the Jewish people. Now, that's also important to understand because the Mosaic law isn't all of the Old Testament. The Mosaic law comes into effect at a certain point in history. When did that occur? It occurs on Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses. It's much broader than the Ten Commandments. There are actually 613 commandments in the, in the Mosaic law. And it, it was designed to be temporary, but it was a, like a constitution for a, a country. So in the United States, we have the, our constitution, and our constitution defines the laws for the United States. In the United States, it is illegal, it is a felony to commit murder. Does that make murder wrong in England? No. British law, it provides the basis for why murder is wrong in Britain. Uh, in, in, uh, in other countries, you have similar laws. What they reflect, though, is a universal principle that is behind that. So murder doesn't become uh, a sin because it's in the Mosaic law. It was a sin all the way back when um, Cain killed Abel in Genesis chapter 4. But it's not stated in terms of a of, of, of a negative until you get to Genesis nine in the in the Noahic covenant, and then thou shalt not murder. Literally, is what the word means in the Hebrew in the in the Ten Commandments in uh, in Exodus. And so the Mosaic law is a law code defining how the Jewish people, how the Hebrew nation would would live. Now remember what happened in, in the Old Testament. You have the, <clears throat> God calls Abraham, and he says, through you I'm going to develop a people that through whom I will bless the entire world. And there's going to come a time, he said, when they're going to spend 430 years outside of this land that I promised you, but I will be faithful to my promise and I will bring them back. And so Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and Jacob's boys all lived in the land that God promised, and then God brought this famine into the into the Middle East, and He uh, provided a way by by all the episode with with Joseph to provide a way for them to be taken out of the land of Canaan down to Egypt, where over a period of four hundred years they developed into a mighty nation of about three or two and a half to three million people. When they came out of Egypt, Egypt became a picture in the Old Testament of slavery to sin. And God's bringing them out, providing freedom for the Jewish people, was a picture of God, what God would do in future salvation in freeing us from the tyranny of sin. So as a nation, the, the Jewish nation is viewed now as a redeemed nation. Okay? Not that everybody in there is redeemed, not that everybody individually is justified, but the nation is treated as a redeemed nation. The next thing that has to happen after somebody is redeemed or saved is what? How do you live? And so the first thing that God does is he gives them the law code, the Mosaic law, 
to show how this unique nation, holy nation, that's the idea of holy, set-apart nation, how this set-apart nation is going to live set apart to the service of God. God called them to be a holy nation, a holy priesthood, as a nation among nations. That's whom God would work through. And so that the, the Mosaic law was designed to set them apart as a nation. Now, what's, what's a more biblical word for set apart? Sanctified. God would sanctify them as a nation. So that meant that it didn't mean that's how they got saved or justified, but that that's how a justified nation, a set-apart nation positionally, would live uh, practically by the observance of all of the uh, commands and prohibitions in the Mosaic Law. So it was the Mosaic Law was a covenant or a contract that God made with, with Israel, and this is how you're, you're to live. Those stipulations, while they might have, like, like the laws related to murder, or thievery or other things may reflect universal absolutes that were reflected in other law codes. The laws of the Mosaic law did not apply to Assyrians or to Egyptians or to anybody else in the ancient world. That wasn't there just as the British laws do not apply to citizens of the United States. It's a different law code. And the reason I'm saying that is when we get into this illustration related to um, marriage in verses 2 and 3, he's specifically talking about the stipulations in the Mosaic law. He's not talking about any other law code, and there were stipulations in every law code in the ancient world related to marriage and divorce because this reflected a universal divine institution, something we're forgetting today, but it related to a universal divine institution. So that's one of the reasons I'm sort of uh, belaboring this particular point is so that we can understand this. Now, the other question that's going to come up in this chapter is, well, why the law? Was the law good? I've had people say, well, the law, the law was really, really bad. No, the pharisaical interpretation of the law was bad, but the law was good. That's the testimony of the, of the New Testament. That's what Paul will say uh, later on in, in Romans chapter 7 is that the, that the law is good and, and holy. And Romans 3.20 says, through the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, the purpose of the law wasn't to justify or it wasn't really even to provide spiritual growth. Ritual observance taught things, but it didn't provide spiritual growth in and of itself. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It was through the Mosaic law that we learned how sinful we really are. Before the law, we kind of had a pretty good idea that we were sinful, but the law, when it teaches about all the things that can make you unclean, and if you're really trying to observe the law, it's like, wow, I can't do anything. If I touch some, certain things, if I go certain places, I'm, I'm always got this problem of uncleanness. Yes, God's making the point how sinful we are, that sin permeates everything. Romans 5.20, Paul said, The law came in that the transgression might increase. See, the more we understood the law, the more we realized how sinful uh, we really were. Verse, and 1 Timothy 1.8, Paul said, We know that the law is good. It's inherently good because it came from God. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. But see, the Pharisees were not using it lawfully. They were distorting it and making it a means of righteousness. So that is why 
it was used wrongly and uh, and distorted. It wasn't designed to make us righteous. Now, as we look at this context, all this by way of introduction, Paul makes a statement in Romans 6.14 where he says, he comes to the conclusion of that first major section in chapter 6. He says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. That's the first mention of law in, in this discussion of the spiritual life. There's A change has taken place. We're not under law but under sin. But immediately Paul realizes that there's somebody in that audience who's going to distort in what he says. And if you've ever taught anything, you always know that you wonder what people actually hear. Every now and then somebody will say, well, I remember when you taught this. I go, I don't think so. And I've been in situations when I've taught over in Russia. I remember one of the first time I went over and we went to, went to uh, Kazakhstan in, in 2000, August of 2000. And, and we were teaching in this, just this, this, this very primitive building. And it was about 110 degrees outside. And we had landed at two o'clock in the morning and, I have no idea where my brain is. And half the students, the, the room is jammed with people with a one small window unit to try to cool the temperature down so it was, it was all the way down to 95 degrees. <clears throat> and there's not a place where you couldn't put another body in the room. And, and Pam hadn't slept any at night, and she had on a big pair of sun, sunglasses, and I could tell she was sitting on the back row, and she was sound asleep with those sunglasses on. Nobody could tell. But this side of the room taught, spoke Russian only, and this side of the room spoke Kazakh only. And so I had two interpreters. And what I didn't realize going in, I was teaching on the spiritual life, what I didn't realize going in was that the only parts of the New Testament had been translated into Kazakh and none of the Old Testament had been translated into Kazakh. So the Kazakh interpreter was listening, also listening to the Russian interpreter. When the Russian interpreter would, would cite the Russian text for a verse, the Kazakh interpreter is translating it on the fly without knowing the Old Testament. I just wondered, is anybody getting anything even close to what I'm trying to communicate? It's always interesting to hear what, what people get. So Paul recognizes this. For He says, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. And he sees the wheels turning between the ears and knows that people are going to say, oh, great, we're not under law. Let's go party. We can do whatever we want to do. And so he immediately stops his main line of thinking and goes off on a slight tangent to deal with, with a, a possible distortion, which is stated in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. May it never be. And so 15 to 23 is really dealing with that, that objection, that issue. So 6.14 takes us to this point where he says you're not under law but under grace, 7-1 picks up the, the train of thought where he says, Don't you know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, 
that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. He's dealing with the fact and explaining now why he can say that the law ends. That there's, because the law ends, we have a new relationship with God that's not related to the law. And as I pointed out when we studied that, under law relates to the dispensation of the law prior to the cross. The cross was the end of the law, Paul says in Romans 10, that the, the, the law is the in, uh, ends at the cross, and what begins after that is, is the age of grace or the church age. The terms are used uh, somewhat synonymously. The church refers to the main group that God's working with in this dispensation. Grace is his primary uh, modus operandi in the church age. doesn't mean there wasn't grace before. All through history, we've all been saved by grace through faith. But that grace wasn't the dominant feature under the Mosaic law. And just as we're not under law anymore doesn't mean that there aren't any absolutes or principles or mandates. There are probably more commands or as many commands in the New Testament as there were in the Mosaic law. Uh, we still have absolutes, and there's still a protocol plan that God's given us. There is still a standard of behavior for members of the royal family of God. So <clears throat> he's, he comes back to this point in verse 1 to show that uh, law has dominion as long as a man lives. But after you die, you're not responsible for observing the Shabbat and resting on the seventh day of every week. You're not responsible for tithing. You're not responsible for observing all of the, the, the feast days. You don't have to make your pilgrimage to, as a male, you don't have to make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, three times a year. Because when you die, the law no longer has any application to you. You're free from the law. That's his point. Then he's going to make an illustration in verse 2 and 3, and then we get the conclusion in verse 4. Note the conclusion. Therefore, my brethren, the fact that he uses the term brethren both in verse 1 and verse 4 indicates he's talking to believers He's not talking to unbelievers. He's, so therefore, there's a clear assumption here that unbelievers, I mean, that believers can not do what he's saying to do, which means believers can sin just as badly and just as perversely as they did before they were saved. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're not going to be able to sin in certain ways or you won't sin in certain ways. And that's important because there's a lot of uh, people within Christendom who think that if you're truly saved, then there are certain things you won't do. And golly, so-and-so did that. They must not be a Christian. No, they're just living like they did before they were saved. Now, verse 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. So see, we're dead. that's his whole point in that illustration is that a death separates us from the authority of law. That's all he's saying. And he's just used, going to use an illustration for marriage that uh, marriage is a contract, but when death occurs, that contract ends. It's no longer applicable to the husband and wife once death occurs. He's not giving a discourse on divorce and remarriage. He's not talking about... Uh, he says too little or not enough about what's going on here to 
to be a discourse on divorce from marriage. There are too many other things that need to be talked about. You have to go to Matthew 5, Matthew 19. You have to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, 7. Uh, you have to look at um, uh, some Old Testament passages to get the whole doctrine of, of marriage in the Scripture. He's only focusing on one thing, that when there is a legally binding contract, that when death occurs, that contract's not binding anymore. And so he uses that one aspect of marriage to illustrate that, and this is seen in the conclusion. He says, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, which is Jesus Christ. And all that he's talking about here is now we have a new authority. Before we were saved in, in Romans 6, he talked about the fact that we were under the dominion of the sin nature. And now, and then he says, after we're saved, we're under the, uh, we're, we're slaves to righteousness, slaves to God. This is just saying it in a different way. Uh, like a wife is under the authority of her husband before he dies. After he dies, she's free to marry another. She marries another. That's the new authority. He's just building on the same concept he's had in Romans 6, that we now have a new authority. And notice what he says, that there's a purpose to this. We're married to another, identified as Christ, the one who was raised from the dead, for the purpose that we should bear fruit to God. That's why we're saved, is to grow to maturity and to produce fruit for, for God, both in terms of our own spiritual maturity, in terms of serving God in many different ways. Bearing fruit to God is a broad concept related to both internal character fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, as well as external service. And it does not imply, see, Lordship people read this and say, see, if you don't bear fruit, you weren't saved. No, this isn't saying that. It's saying that the purpose for your justification was so that you would have the potential to bear fruit. It doesn't say that you will necessarily bear fruit. But see, that's your decision. You've been saved for the purpose of bearing fruit to God. That's why God made all this incredible transformation in our lives. So are we going to activate that or not? That's our decision. So next time we'll come back and begin to look at this and finish up the uh, transition opening and then get into the whole problem with the law and confusing morality with spirituality in the rest of the chapter. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to be reminded of your grace, your goodness, that you've provided everything that we need in order to be justified. It's not on the basis of who who we are or what we've done. It's on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. But, Father, you have given us this remarkable spiritual life, our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, the baptism by the Holy Spirit, our indwelling by the Holy Spirit, the potential of being filled by the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit. And this is what enables us to grow and mature. And that's the objective. That's why you've done all this is so that we would grow and mature, bearing fruit, uh, being witnesses to the angels, witnesses to other human beings, and that you might be glorified by our lives because that's the purpose. And we need not get our eye off of that, that objective and not be distracted, but constantly be reminded that we're saved to bear fruit for you. And we pray that you would uh, help us, remind us, challenge us to be steadfast. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.